Well, I am thrilled to be with you today. It has been a while since I preached at uh, GCR. Many of you probably don't remember or have any idea, but way back in the day, Ronnie used to bring me in on uh, Wednesday nights and summer series and things like that, and uh, I'm just thrilled to be here again, and I so deeply appreciate Alan Stanglin. He followed me at the Central Church Christ in Amarillo, Texas, and I had led that church about as far as I could go. I was burned out, and he stepped in, and I turned in to be the warm-up act for that guy who led that church deeper into the vision God had given them than I could ever go. And I'm so grateful for the partnership that we've shared there. And so now get to build on that, work together, because you're a partner church with us at MRN. has just been really special. I love to come to Midland. I love the people in Midland. Uh, and so it's great to be here. Now, can you believe we are in March of 2023. How was that possible? Do you remember when it took 12 months to get through a year? It was not that long ago, but ever since 2020, everything's a little crazy. We still mark time with the expression BC, but now it means before COVID. Because before COVID, life was one way, now it's another. We've had to push reset. We've started all over again. New baseline, new set of evaluations. Nobody knows what anything means anymore. And I remember life before. And sometimes I wonder if we're ever going to regain our sanity as a culture because life fundamentally changed. Just think about what we've endured since 2020 with the pandemic and the social distancing and the economic crisis with all of the supply chain issues, and then the racial conflict in that summer when we had all of those deaths of African Americans, and we had the riots, and we had all of the marches, and then, the, and then we were, you know, like we were forced to choose between whether we're going to support black lives or police. What, what, we have to make a choice here. And then the mask wars. Now listen, I've known churches to argue about some crazy things, but we're fighting about whether we're wearing masks. And then the political polarization, like we don't remember in our lifetimes, and conspiracy theories, and an insurrection, and then the shootings, just the shootings. Buffalo, just Tulsa, Uvalde, Michigan State, one after another, it just never seems to end. And we've been living in the perfect storm of crazy, and it's hard to believe. I feel like collectively as a nation, we have PTSD and we've been scrambling to understand what's happening. We've been scrambling to figure out who we're going to trust, how we're going to adjust. Reality is up for grabs now because every group doesn't just claim their point of view. They claim their own facts. This group has their facts. These people have their facts. We cannot agree on what our news sources are going to be. We have fear. We have outrage. It's just attack at the order of the day. I feel like people have given up coffee and just gone to opening up their phone to find out what they should be outraged first thing in the morning to give them the energy to get through the day. We want to start our day at an emotional red line. That's not been the way it's been all the time. But this did not start in 2020. 2020 just took long developing cultural trends and put them on turbo drive, put them on acceleration, because it really started, if you ask me, it really started with 9-11. Do you realize that college students today have no memory of life before 9-11? It's been that long ago. But I remember it well. Do you remember 89, the Berlin Wall fell? The old Eastern Bloc collapsed. It looked like communism was on its way out. America was the only remaining superpower, and it just looked like life was going to be wonderful for a long time. 
and we just were going to be up and to the right from now on, and then comes 9-11, and we find out that we still have an enemy, and we are shocked to find out that the world is still profoundly messed up. We are no longer going to be able to have that kind of naivety about it. We have a radical Islamic terrorist threat. We've got all kinds of other threats. Then we have a war in Afghanistan that lasts 20 years, a war in Iraq, the Arab Spring in 2011. We have revolutions that happen all around the Mediterranean. The Syrian war still hasn't ended. Refugee crisis, people coming into the Europe by the millions, overwhelming them. Terrorist attacks happening almost every week somewhere in the world. And then the Russians reemerge as a threat, and they march in and take the Ukraine, the southern part of Ukraine there. And, and we thought that was bad. We had no idea what was coming. And then we have a lecturing ta election tampering happening from the Russians in North Korea with Kim, Kim Jong-un, and, and we've got him shooting missiles over Japan. And then we have... A near war with Iran. Do you remember when we killed Soleimani, that general from Iran, and it looked like we might get into a shooting war? We've forgotten about that. That seems small now. China has reemerged as a threat. We have all kinds of stuff happening. At the Afghanistan falls to the Taliban. Russia invades Ukraine. And now we have spy satellites floating from balloons going over our country. And we're at a place now where if a helium-filled party favor gets loose, we're scrambling fighter jets to shoot that sucker down because we're afraid. Our culture is afraid. And while all of this is happening, the church in America is in decline. And we have the rise of the nuns and the rise of the duns, and we're reimagining life now we're not even sure the basic building blocks of life. What does it mean to be married? Who can be married? What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? Everything is up for grabs and redefinition. The pandemic shuts us down. We're not sure we can recover. And a lot of Christians are just scared. I go to cities all over the United States, and Christians are just afraid. And we can be forgiven if we want to look at God and say, God, what in the world are you doing? Well... That feeling that we have, that panicky, insecure, anxious, overwhelmed feeling that we have, I want to remind you that that's the cultural context into which Jesus stepped. That is the context, that kind of panicky, on the edge of the knife, sword of Damocles hanging over our head, our culture, our nation might be destroyed at any moment, pitted against each other with Pharisees, against Sadducees, against Herodians, against Zealots, people picking up arms and saying we need to start an insurrection, and everybody terrified that those guys are going to get us killed, and the, the nation just pitted against each other, at each other's throats all of the time, everybody feeling like life is on the edge. That's the world that Jesus stepped into. And when it looked like everything was going to come apart, when it looked like everything was broken, when it looked like the world was just about to crater, God began to do the most important work in the history of the world because he was seeking to transform the world. So maybe God still has things in place. I want to remind you about a little conversation that happened after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11, verses 48 through 50. 
When Lazarus comes back from the dead, people don't go, oh, wonderful, isn't this great? No, no, look what the leadership of Israel is saying to each other. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. You hear that? Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up and said, you know nothing at all. Do you not realize it's better for you that one man die for the people than that all, the whole nation perish? Did you realize Jesus was killed in the name of national security? It's irrelevant where he comes from or what he's doing. If we let him do this, he's going to bring our whole nation down. Now, let me tell you something. You probably know this, but I want to remind you. But if you don't know this, it's important to understand. Fear makes us stupid. It's a biological fact. Talk to a neurologist. The way the human brain is constructed... You have the brain stem, which controls all the things that you never have to think about, like breathing and your heart rate and when your body starts to sweat and all of that kind of stuff. And then you have the second layer of brain, the limbic brain, that controls your emotional system. And then you have the cerebral cortex, that part that distinguishes us from the animal kingdom, that part of the brain that can think logically and that can have faith and can imagine and dream and relate and live into narratives and make sense of the world. That part of the the brain that makes us uniquely like God in many, many ways, right? But here's the thing. When the stress level, when the fear level, when the anxiety level gets high enough in a human brain, the cerebral cortex shuts down and the limbic part of the brain takes over and we begin to function at lizard level. And we only know how to do three things when we're in our lizard brain. Fight, flight, or freeze. So we run, we attack each other, or we just hunker down, paralyzed, and hope the enemy doesn't see us. That's all we know how to do. Folks, can we rise above lizard brain and be human beings to each other again? It's a real problem when Christians are overcome with fear because we cannot love when we're afraid. We cannot have faith when we're afraid. That's why in the Bible, over and over from cover to cover, an angel or God or somebody says, don't be afraid, just believe. Just have faith. But when the gospel was born, God's people were terrified. They saw nothing as but threat. That's why Saul of Tarsus was going around playing whack-a-mole with the Christians. We got to get rid of it. We got to kill it. We got to kill it or it's going to kill us. Until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and went, oh, okay. But here's the thing. God often does his greatest work when it looks like the world is falling apart. You see, but Israel couldn't see that in the day of Jesus. They couldn't see that. But despite how horrible things looked to them, despite how afraid they were, God was about to not just save Israel, but to transform a whole world with a salvation design, not just for Israel, but for the whole world, because God's mission was bigger than Israel. Jesus did not come to make Israel great again. Jesus came to save a whole world from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and to unite them into the one restored humanity that God created. And despite how things may look to us right now globally, I want you to understand we are living in a golden age of the kingdom of God like we have not seen since maybe the first three centuries. Did you know that a hundred years ago, 
Less than 10% of Africans were Christian by any definition, Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, you name it, less than 10% in 1900. Today, half of the people on the African continent are followers of Jesus. It is the most Christian continent on the planet, and the Africans are leading the way. In China, in 1948, Mao Zedong takes over. By 1950, he's pretty much got control of China, and he does everything he can to eradicate Christianity. Only about 3 million Christians of any type in China at that time, mostly in very foreign-looking Western kinds of churches. It was, it was a pimple on, on China's behind. It was insignificant. And, and Mao Zedong took it out. He, uh, he took away all the church's property. He confiscated the seminaries. Every institutional presence of the church was eradicated, and any priest, pastor, or Christian leader who wouldn't swear allegiance to Mao and the Communist Party over Jesus was imprisoned, tortured, or killed. And we in the West thought, oh, Christianity's dead in China. It's all gone. And then in the 1990s, China began to lift the bamboo curtain and let business and, and journalists back in. You know what we found out? The gospel went subterranean and exploded. And it was the fastest growth of the kingdom in the history of the world over a 50-year period of time. And today there are about 140 million followers of Jesus in China. There are more people worshiping. Jesus in China this weekend than in Europe, maybe in the United States, and they're sending the gospel back to Silk Road, back down to Jerusalem, making all the same kind of mistakes we've been making as missionaries for years. But it's phenomenal what's happening. Brazil and South Korea used to be seen as mission destinations. Now they are two of the world's leading missionary sending countries. It only takes 200 Koreans to send a missionary. It takes 2,000 American Christians to send a missionary. You can't do anything in Southern Asia without running into Koreans, who are kind of the Texans of Asia. You can't tell them much. They're going to do it their way, right? But hey, they're taking the gospel. Christianity is not in decline worldwide, but it's going through a massive transformation. The center of life and vitality in the church has moved south of the equator into the Far East. And the church in the West, where it used to be strong, has become decadent, self-obsessed, and self-destructive. And God the farmer has come into the vineyard with his knife, and he's cutting, and he's cutting, and he's cutting. And we're getting smaller and smaller, and we can't tell, are we being cut off or cut back? And we're afraid... And we look at all that dead wood being hauled off to be burned, and we're like, oh, we miss it so much. But it wasn't helping us be fruitful. But God ain't cutting us off. He's just cutting us back. And we'll be stronger, but we're going to be smaller until we get bigger. But God is on the move today just like he was the day of Pentecost. At a missions conference right before the pandemic, I heard Leith Anderson get up and speak to about representatives from over 300 Christian missions agencies in North America. And he said that if you look at the statistics, on average, 3,000 people give their life to Jesus every hour of every day somewhere around the planet, just not all in one place, which means every hour of every day is the day of Pentecost, just not all in the same place. In 1900, 80% of Christians lived either in Europe or North America. By 2000, only 37% of the world's Christians lived in North America or Western Europe. And some of that was decline. 
in the West, but most of that was the massive expansion of the kingdom of God absolutely everywhere else. Christianity is not in decline anywhere except in the West. It's the world's fastest growing religion by conversion, although the Muslims are having more babies. And y'all probably ought to do something about that. In the United States, the only people who are experiencing decline are white people. The church is still thriving among immigrants and people of color, but we kind of forget about them and get obsessed with ourselves. Globally, we are living in a golden age of the kingdom of God, and we're missing it because we are looking at ourselves and obsessed with ourselves, and we have forgotten God and the greater kingdom. Now, how has it happened that in the last hundred years, we've seen this massive expansion of the Christian faith? Two primary reasons. Number one, churches like this one have had a global heart and a global passion for a long time. And you have faithfully sent the gospel and kingdom workers all over the world in astonishing numbers. This church is a phenomenal mission church, and the world needs you to stay that way. Thank you. There's no telling how many hundreds of thousands of people know about Jesus because of GCR. The world cannot afford for this church to not be strong and healthy. Thank you. Second reason, far more important, God is not dead. He's not tired. He's not even old. He just is. And he hasn't surrendered his role as Lord of the Harvest. And God is still calling us into the mission field, both locally and globally. Did you know that 70% of the world's Christians now live outside the West? But that 70% of the church has 17 one seven, seventeen percent of the church's annual income, not wealth, income. Now, what's that tell us? We have a role to play, but it's not just money. Leadership training, education, medicine, engineering—we have so many skills that can be brought in and put alongside wise indigenous leaders all around the world to deepen and accelerate what they're doing to expand the gospel if we'll just think creatively about how to come along and serve something that is being led from somewhere else. We are phenomenally blessed in this country and we need to stay involved in global missions. Not because we're the headquarters of the church and they need us to come save them, but because if we're not connected to the global church, we're being unfaithful, and more importantly, we are not learning from where the kingdom of God is expanding most rapidly. You need to stay in global missions for what you will learn from your mission partners, not from what you will teach them, because research and development of the kingdom of God is happening in other countries, and they're doing better, and if we're not learning from them, we're missing out on what God is doing in the world. We need to learn from them. Have you ever asked your missionaries to evaluate you? Because this is not a one-way relationship. So if you were to ask God, God, what in the world are you doing? Three primary things that I would articulate. Number one, urbanization. And I know in West Texas, we don't like that. We're rural people. We're all one or two generations away from having our hands in the dirt and taking care of wild animals or domestic animals, right? That's me. That's me. But God is urbanizing the world. Over our lifetimes, that changed. For the first time in world history, over half of the human population lived in the city in 2005. That was nearly 20 years ago. By 2050, 70% of the world's people are projected to be living in cities. 
By the way, the Bible starts in a garden and it ends in a city. Second major global trend, immigration. We don't like that either. But more people are living outside their home country than any time in human history. Over one billion people are on the move today. One out of seven humans on the planet are no longer living in their home area. 272 million people live outside their home country. And over 750 million people would leave their home country if they could figure out how to get out. 43 million people living in this country were not born in this country. And you say, well, I don't like that. Well, they're here. You're going to love them or not? Urbanization, immigration, third, technology. This one we like a little better. We have instant global communication everywhere in the world, and the pandemic just accelerated that. We used to have to travel to other continents to do training we can now do online because they all figured out how to get online while we were in the pandemic. It's awesome. Now if you can figure out how to solve the time zone problem, my life would get a lot easier because I'm tired of doing Zoom calls at crazy hours. But if you take those three things, urbanization, immigration, and technology, you get globalization, which I know we are uncomfortable with, but just let me tell you about globalization in Texas. About 5 million residents in Texas are foreign-born. That's 17% or 1 in 6 people. 25% of the people in Dallas are foreign-born. DFW's foreign-born population grew by 552% from 2000 to 2013. Nearly half of the people in Houston speak a language other than English at home. 27% of households in Texas don't speak English at home. One in four Texans is either a Latino or an Asian. And in Midland, which is not necessarily the most cosmopolitan city in Texas, 14% of the people who live in your fair city were not born in this country, and they come from places like Mexico, Cuba, Burma, El Salvador, Jamaica, China, and India, just to name the top countries. Did you know that if you win them to Christ, on average, immigrants are supporting 15 people in their home country, which means they're high-status people, which means that what they think starts to have an impact back home. You win them to Christ, it starts changing things. And I know these are disorienting forces, and I know for those of us who represent the majority of the population, this creates a lot of fear. I understand we feel like we're losing control of our country. I understand this sense of how much diversity can we handle as a nation, and I don't know the answer to that question. But here's the thing. Who's doing this? I want you to imagine God waking up after about a century of slumber, just a little nap for God, and he looks down at the earth and he goes, whoa! When did that happen? Who let, who let the fences down? I didn't want these people mixing up like that. What if, what if, just thought experiment. What if God is collecting all the people groups of the world in the cities of the world and giving us the technology to reach all of them in one generation? What if God was tired of waiting us to get to all of the unreached people groups of the world, so he just brought them to our cities? You say, well, I don't like that. If God's doing that, do we want to fight him? Or do we want to join him? I don't know. These are complex issues. I understand. I'm glad I'm not a politician. I don't have to figure that out. All I know is everybody I encounter is made in the image of God. And if they're my enemy... Jesus told me I'm supposed to love them. So global missions is now virtually 
possible anywhere in the world. Our son is a missionary in New York City. He lives in the Bronx, and they have planted churches all over the world from Bible studies they've had in bodegas and McDonald's in the Bronx because 43 million people in New York City weren't born in the United States. We have an opportunity like we've never had before to reach the world from within our own cities. And we got to get over this myth of salt water that you got to cross an ocean to be on mission. Mission is happening everywhere we go. And the greatest opportunity of our lifetimes, the most exciting thing in my lifetimes, is the opening up of the Muslim world. Because for 1,400 years, since 610, the Islamic world has been virtually impenetrable to the, by the gospel. Almost no activity whatsoever. Christians were not having any impact until about, 10, about 15, 20 years ago. And really in the last 15 years, there's just been this explosion of openness to the gospel among Muslims. More Muslims have come to Christ in the last 15 years than the previous 1,400 years combined. It's amazing what terrorism, war, and destabilization have created. I have had so many former Muslims around the Mediterranean say to me personally, we are so tired of Muhammad. He's a man of war. We need Jesus. He's a man of peace. ISIS all of the wars are opening up people's hearts to Jesus in new ways, and Jesus is showing up in visions and dreams in ways that scare us to death. Four out of seven Muslims who are refugees who come into Europe who talk to a Christian will say they have had a vision or a dream of Jesus along the way. And they show up at churches saying, can you tell me about the man in white who said, I am the bread of life, or I am the door. And they start telling them about Jesus. In 1979, when the Shah of Iran was driven out of the country and the Ayatollah Khomeini came in, maybe there were 500 Christians in Iran today, over half a million out of a population of about 70 million. And the country that has the fastest growing population of Christians in the world in the last few years has been Iran with an average of 12 to 20% annual growth rate in spite of severe persecution, imprisonment, and sometimes even beheadings. And yet the gospel is alive and awake in Iran. In 2016, we began to hear about this, so we sent one of our staff to an island in the Mediterranean for a Muslim evangelism conference, and there was a representative from all these Muslim countries giving a country report. And the man who got up to give the country report from Morocco began by saying, I thank God for ISIS because they are making it possible for our people to learn about Jesus. Oh, now that's a tough prayer. At MRN, we have been mobilizing workers and trying to get them in the field as quickly as possible to respond to this opening because we have people coming from countries that are virtually inaccessible to places that we can get them. And you have helped us. You've been a key partner for us in that. You're one of our partners. And, and yet, even to this day, 86% of Muslims in the world have no access to the gospel. They've never met a Christian. That's that's 86% of 1.2 billion people. But with your help and with your partnership, we've put seven teams in four countries. We have seven teams in preparation ready to launch. Thank you for being a key partner for church for us with MedRAM. I just want to show you a few pictures of some of the impact. If you would, this picture, uh, this is a baptism of Syrians 
who were former Muslims baptizing another former Muslim into Christ. And this spot is where Lydia was baptized according to tradition outside of Philippi. So the very first Christian baptism in Europe happened at this spot. And there were a group of Christians who showed up while this baptism was going on to see what God used to do and ran into what God's doing today. This is a picture of a Bible study, a little house church or a little tent church outside a refugee camp not far from Thessaloniki. Group of Syrians, they were studying the Romans 8 that day, and the argument at the end of it was, if we could get back into Syria, would everybody in our village believe Jesus or only half of them? They can't wait to get back. Baptisms in the Mediterranean are happening every day as Muslims are baptized, former Muslims are baptizing Muslims into Christ. And this next picture, I'm sorry we have to pixelate the faces, but these people get targeted for violence. If you would show that next picture, the guy on the left there, uh, you remember Merdad, Eric? Uh, Merdad, former neighborhood enforcer with the mafia and terror Ron, spent some time in prison where he ran into Christians who talked about their living God, and he was so impressed with how they handled suffering that when he got out of prison, he wanted somebody to tell him about Jesus. He, he found somebody who could introduce him to Christ in a refugee camp in Turkey. When we met him in the fall of night, uh, 2019, he had already baptized 500 former Muslims into Jesus and was functioning as a member of the team with a Hungarian and Japanese couple that we had trained that were working there in Athens. It's just phenomenal. New believers who have come to Jesus in Europe are now planning to take, take the gospel back to Syria, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan. And the people who've come to Christ in Greece have already gone to nine other countries and started churches. So what in the world is God doing? Let me tell you what God's doing. God's bringing people from every nation, every race, every tribe, and every language together to form one people to inhabit the new heaven and the new earth with God in their midst where all things will be set right. Ephesians 2, 13 and 14. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. 2017, we spent the summer, most of the summer in Greece, working with refugees, and a brother named Abdul, new brother in Christ, told me, he said, I was trained by the Russians to work on MiG fighter air jets, and we were enemies. He said, but now we are brothers. We were enemies, but now we are one. Allah was far away. We could not know him. My father was a Muslim. His father was a Muslim. His father was going back a thousand years. But now Jesus lives in here. See, the love of God is bigger than the conflict between nations. The love of God heals the world. So how can we join what God is doing around the world? Well, let me just give you some quick ideas. Number one, do not give in to cynicism. God is winning. I don't care what they say on the evening news. Number two, do not let political leaders exploit your fear and lose your love for the people that God has created everywhere in the world. Number three, <laughs> turn off the bad news. The news media is an industry that uses fear to sell advertising. Number four, invest globally. Develop and invest in that 70% of the Christians out there who want to take the world, the gospel of the rest of the world, but don't have the resources. Help them get there. Pray 
globally. Pray for your workers. And ask God, is he calling me to go? Because the best workers we've trained are typically empty nesters and second career people. They didn't think they were going to go at one stage in their life either. And start here. I'm going to close with this one story about my friend Mohammed. I met him because I had an old external hard drive that quit working. And my wife wanted it because we had all these family pictures on it. We didn't have them in the cloud at that time. And so I went to this store that said computer on the front of it. And I walked in, and here's this guy. Looks Middle Eastern. We talk. I gave him the drive. He says, yeah, we'll have that come back in a week. I come back in a week. And he says, mm, we got it working, but we haven't got to transfer a new drive. Come back tomorrow. So I come back tomorrow, pick it up. And after two or three conversations, I'm like, hey, I'm just curious. I love your accent. Where are you from? He said, Afghanistan. I'm like, whoa, Afghanistan. How long have you been here? Three months. Three months? How did you get a visa to come to the United States? He said, I was a translator for the U.S. Army, and at the end of my tour, they gave me a visa to come to the United States. I said, thank you. Thank you for putting your life on the line with our forces. I said, do people like you here? Are they kind to you? He said, no. I said, really? He said, no. I'm a Muslim. My name is Muhammad. And I said, hey, listen. As a follower of Jesus, I just want you to know I'm glad you're in our country. Can we be friends? And he said, oh, you're my first American friend. So we started. He had a Scottish accent. Strange thing. <laughs> so I, 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 we just started, I just started hanging out. Found out he thinks guacamole is nasty. We began to have spiritual conversations. And he found out that people that love Jesus don't have to hate him. Folks, this is not hard. This is not rocket surgery. You can do this. That, that Vietnamese woman that does your nails, she's not a piece of machinery. She's not a piece of landscape. She's made in the image of God, and she's probably never been invited to eat in a house with people that look like you. That Pakistani guy who runs that convenience store probably doesn't know that you love him. It's just not that hard to love people. So, despite how disorienting things look, no matter how bad the news may sound, let me tell you something. God is winning. God is redeeming every person around the world one at a time because God's not giving up on anything that he has created. And so here's the thing. God just wants to say to us, can you please just trust me? Quit being afraid and come out here with me on mission because we're doing something absolutely amazing.